Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. In ancient Greek tragedy, the protagonist goes to his tragic end because it is his fate. In the biblical tragedy of the kings, the nation falls into its tragic fate because Led by their kings, they refuse to believe the offer of salvation offered to them by their God. Let's listen as we come to the mournful finale of the once promising but ultimately doomed Kingdom of Judah. First, we need to uh, wind up the sad story of Second Kings and then explain something that is absolutely perplexing and then introduce something that will will take us deeper into the cavern than we really wanted to go, and yet show us the way out. So let's begin, let's begin kind of in the middle of where we are, uh, of where we need to be. Look at uh, 2 Kings chapter 24. Just the pickup verses to that, uh, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to, well, after the death of Josiah, Josiah, King Josiah, good King Josiah, good King Josiah, was killed in battle, Pharaoh Necho, who was on his way to engage the Babylonians at a battle which is famously known in history as the Battle of Carchemish. Nebuchadnezzar won. The king of the Babylonians won. Nebuchadnezzar never lost. Let me just go ahead and tell you. He's one of the great and yet little known political, military geniuses of all time. And someone who was a great man in his day and left an enormous legacy uh, which dictators to this present day would like to emulate, including the late Saddam Hussein. Now, Pharaoh Necho's attempt to link up with the Assyrians and to defeat the Babylonians and reestablish control of the, Meta, of the Mesopotamian world, that just wasn't going to happen. Necho thought he had it, he didn't have it. God knew all along he didn't have it. The reason God knew he didn't have it is because God didn't give it to him. But we're going to see some more about that later, a little bit later. The main thing is God is in control of all of these things. We can look back and secular historians and archaeologists and those who, who deal with these things look at these things and they see the, the political causes and effects. They see the movements of people. They see sociological things going on. They see all of these things. And it's all, all of this is really good and useful analysis because this is the way people relate to one another. And those things haven't changed, but something else is even more critical that hasn't changed, and that is who God is. And who God is, he's the sovereign over all the nations of the world. Not just the people that he chose, but all the nations of the world. 
and he set it up. And if they rose to power, it's because he set them up to rise in power. And if they had a limit to their power, guess who drew the limit? Guess who drew up, guess who raised up the opponents for them? So all of this is presented. This is what's presented in Scripture, and this is what's shown to us in the book of Kings. And so we see that jo uh, Josiah was killed in battle. His son Jehoahaz, 23 years old, took his place. Uh, Pharaoh Necho literally owned him and owned his kingdom and took him prisoner, kept him prisoner in Egypt, set up his brother, changed his brother's name to rule for him. So all of this is going on. And Jehoiakim, verse 36 of chapter 23, was 25 when he began to reign. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was this. You know, go, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. That's the big deal. And then in his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up. Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. And then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him the bands of the Chaldeans, the bands of the Syrians, the bands of the Moabites, the bands of the Ammonites. And he sent them against Judah to destroy it. What's being presented here in a very few verses is a period of time in which all of the strength of the kingdom of Judah, and the kingdom of Judah had gotten strong again under Josiah, and all of the strength of the kingdom of Judah began to be whittled and nibbled and chopped away bit by bit by bit. It was not a grand fall. It was an inglorious you take away everything and you think nothing's going to be left and yet there's still some elements of the economy and still some elements of the government and still some elements of the society and religion that are thriving. And then something comes away and takes along that, takes away that. And then something else comes away and takes away that. And then it's just like being hit by one thing after another, after another. Not any one thing being the death blow. But one thing after another, after another, after another. And the interesting thing about it is, through the whole, through the whole business and the whole atmosphere, there's this situation that you know where it's going. You know where it's going, not because of the decree of God, because God had already decreed it, but you know where it's going, not because of the decree, but if you never had heard the decree of God, you could still see where this is going because of the character of the people. You've got the character of Jehoiakim. A man who's disloyal to his own God is going to be disloyal to any other allegiance that he gives. And that was Jehoiakim. And so he kept trying to maneuver. He kept trying to manipulate. He kept trying to think that he could manage this on his own. He didn't need God to govern his affairs. He needed just to be, he was, he was a humanist all the way. But there's the, the declaration, chapter 24, verse 3, Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done in accordance and false, so for the innocent blood he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, 
and the Lord would not pardon. Jehoiakim slept with his fathers. Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. And also, the, and the king of Egypt did not come again out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king. He reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all his father had done. At that time, he happened to be the king with the first captivity. Nebuchadnezzar came. As a matter of fact, Nebuchadnezzar took him prisoner back to Babylon. Kept him in a dungeon cell back in Babylon. And took the brightest and best of Judah <coughs> with him. Daniel was one of the captives in that group. Yeah. On verse 4, it says, um, innocent blood and the Lord would not forgive. Is that part of the reason why Joash, the good king, was killed? Was because the Lord had never forgiven Israel, Judah for... Well, that was all before this time. That was all before this time. Wasn't Joash after... You mean Josiah? Josiah, yeah. After... Yeah, Josiah came after Manasseh. Josiah was the son of Manasseh. And we're going to talk about that, too. Okay. What, because... Josiah led a, an enormous, far-reaching, sweeping reform and revival that took place under Josiah. Why did God, and I'll, and I'll tell you, we'll get to that. We're going to come back to that. Because this not forgive was written after that, those reforms. That's right. That was written after those four. After those four because God had already pronounced the judgment in the days of Manasseh, and God was not going to go back on it. You've crossed, basically during the reign of Manasseh, Judah had crossed the line. They had crossed the deadline, and God said, that's it. No more. That's a good analogy. We're going to come back to that, so hold that thought. Hold that thought, because that is, that really is... <coughs> So uh, Jehoiachin, who is also called in some places Jeconiah. Jeremiah referred to him as the son, uh, as, as Coniah. And he is in the, he appears in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew and shows up there as Jeconiah. Jehoiachin, uh, taken to Babylon, he is replaced by his brother, his little brother Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His, yeah, well, he goes on, tells about his mother and all that. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them from his presence. And Judah and Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. We're going to see a lot about the story of Jehoiakim, of the Jehoiachin, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. We're going to see them when we come up as we study Jeremiah. And we're going to see Jeremiah's profiles of these men. And we're going to see inside, the inside of what's going on that Kings gives us the outside of. So I'm not going to delve too deeply in talking about them and their character. Just chapter 25, 
brings through, and we summarized that last week, but I was just looking over this, this again, and I was fascinated by the detail of the account of the dismantling, not just the destruction, the dismantling, and then the destruction of the temple. And there are details. He goes through and it's like he take, the writer of Kings makes an inventory of the stuff that Nebuchadnezzar took. Including, he, he talks about, he took the silver and uh, silver vessels and the gold, all the vessels that were silver and gold. He took them for silver and gold. You know what that means? That means he had no interest in using the vessels as vessels. He just took them in order to melt them down for their pure monetary value. The vessels meant nothing to him. Their usefulness, their, their purpose, the function for which artisans had slaved for hours in order to construct. For days, the design, the construction, the beauty meant nothing to Nebuchadnezzar. It was silver and it was gold. Take it, melt it down. Same thing with bronze. Enormous stores of bronze. Incalculable quantities of bronze taken. Oh, we can use that for our army. Take it, melt it down. And it goes through and details the dismantling of that in the same kind of detail that talked about when Solomon had it constructed and put in its place. I think I first heard this phrase from Bill Cosby. who's was describing with his, his relationship with his father. Who told him, I brought you into this world and I will take you out. Well, you know, I mean, that's, that's rough jesting. But it's no joke when it's God. And God brought them into this, and God brought them this, and God gave them this temple, and God established this as his house on earth. And we're going to find out, we're going to find out, if we ever get to Ezekiel, we'll really find out some of the inside of the, it was like the temple had become a totem it was not a temple anymore it was not the house of God it was, it was a good luck charm and the you know when the Assyrians were turned away there was a the, apparently there was a cult that began that just started really just sort of a uh, it, it turned into a, a nationwide movement we can't be defeated Jerusalem can never be captured because we have the temple of the Lord Never mind the fact that we have desecrated it, defiled it, turned it into an abomination. God says, what, you just don't mess with God that way. You don't put anything in front of God. You don't put anything in front of God and say, here, you can't, you can't touch me because of this. There are a lot of Baptists who are lost and going to hell because they have embraced a correct doctrine that those who are saved cannot be unsaved. But they have embraced that as their hope of salvation rather than their Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to know something. You're not saved because one, you don't stay saved because once saved, always saved. You stay saved because you have a Savior 
who always intercedes for you. And if you don't know him, then you never knew him, and you've never been saved to begin with. So don't trust that doctrine for your security and salvation. If saved, always saved. That's a better way of saying it. And if you're saved, salvation is not a ticket to heaven. It is a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That actually was not a uh, diversion. That, that actually is part of what we're talking about here. Ken, uh, mm -hmm. is this the time that the Ark Covenant disappeared? That's a good question. The Ark of the Covenant has not been mentioned since 1 first, since first Kings. The last mention of the Ark of the Covenant was the poles of the Ark that stuck out from, from behind the temple because somebody messed up and they decided, well, we're just going to let, we're just going to leave it that way. <laughs> you know, because, the, you know, a couple of kings went in there and used That's true, that's true. But that was the last mention of the Ark, so. I just we're going to assume that it's where it was when we last knew about it. There you go. Well, I, I've got a thought of Gary on this. As, as you've gone through each of these who have become king. Fast forward to modern day as far as our leaders. <laughs> wow. You know, the thought just dawned on me. And if you will, taking a part of what you just mentioned, if saved, always saved. If they're truly saved, then they're truly they we are truly believers then we wouldn't do some of the things we do as leaders we wouldn't uh, you would think yeah, yeah you would think so in essence <coughs> the kings you know the leaders then and, and the leaders now now, Kings winds up. Remember that one of the basic principles that it, you can derive from Kings is that people get the leaders that they want. The leadership of the people matches who they are. Why do you think that Manasseh reigned for 50, 50 some odd years despite the fact that he was the wickedest king that they ever had? That's who they wanted. They liked it. There was a market that was created that For Judah. They liked him. They wanted him. They kept... They needed him. There were, there were, I mean, he had supporters. Yeah, I'm the godly mourned. So that tells you something. And of the people who remained in the land of Judah in verse 22, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left when finally the last deportation took place... Yeah, there were still people there. And he appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, governor. He was one of the servants of Jehoiakim. Gedaliah, or, and of Zedekiah. He was not in the royal family. Some members of the royal family came and assassinated him. Just to make things really hunky-dory with the king of Babylon. And then they fled. We're going to see more of all of this. They, they took Jeremiah, the prophet, kicking and screaming with him down to Egypt. In this second captivity, chapter, verse 22, is where Jeremiah 
Yeah, actually, this is a this is apparently the third deportation, and then in the twenty seventh, thirty seventh year of the act. Now, here's the interesting thing. Uh, verse twenty six, by the way, of chapter. This kind of puts it there. Then all the people, both small and great, the captains and forces arose, went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. And so, you've got those escaping, those refugees, those remnant that are still in Judah. They left and went to Egypt. Which is, of course, historically, going all the way back to the beginning. The place of their captivity. So, here's the interesting little coda to 2 Kings. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month on the 37th day of the month, Abel Merodach, king of Babylon. By the way, that, that's a proper name that it doesn't have anything to do with the English word evil. Okay, just to let you know. Abel Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments. And every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. Now that's an interesting little thing. That is how Second Kings ends. <coughs> Which tells you a little bit of something. This whole majestic history of Israel and Judah has been put together after the captivity. This history in its, that is epic in sweep and in, in the scope of it that goes all the way back to Joshua. Written after Finally, I'm at the final composition. Of course, sources are used and put together and edited together, but the final composition comes together in the second generation of the captivity of Judah. And this little coda, it's kind of like an epilogue. What does this have to do with anything? It's kind of like the writer of Kings said, you know, I don't want to leave all of this on a total down. looks like everything's all hopeless and everything but you know what there is still someone from the line of David who's still who is still alive it looks like God's promise to David <coughs> has gone away but you know what <laughs> David still lives Now we're going to, there are dimensions to this that, are, that make it really complicated. The writer of Kings is not interested in the complication, so we're not going to be right now. We'll get to it when we get to it in Jeremiah. I want to go back and deal with that unanswered question, that nagging thing. Manasseh, through his unprecedented and unparalleled introduction of idolatry and the worship of idols and the blasphemies that he committed and particularly the bloodshed that he introduced and brought in not only into the society of Judah but into the religion of Judah 
through child sacrifice and through the persecution of the prophets and the slaying of innocent blood in order to establish himself in power. And God says, not in my kingdom. You're still mine. I've not decided that you're not my people anymore. I've just, I'm just going to hold you to the standard that's been there all along. And you go back to the covenant conditions that Moses laid out in Deuteronomy. And the things that take place and the things that are enumerated are the things that Moses described as the curses which shall befall. That Moses described explicitly in Deuteronomy. And they all came to pass in the order that Moses laid them out. Now here's the deal. What did the law accomplish? What did the law accomplish in Judah and Israel? Condemnation. The law said, do this and you shall live. These are the blessings of the covenant. Enter into my blessing. Enter into my covenant and live. And when they did that, when they were in that communion, though that communion was never perfect, ever, God regarded it graciously as perfect and blessed them according to the blessings that he promised. But when they violated his covenant and turned their back on him and did those things that God said, you shall not do this, the curses had to be invoked. They were up to this point disciplinary. That is, with the effort to make a correction. But in, during the kingdom of Manasseh, there came a line, a line that was crossed, that God said, discipline is no longer an option. These people are not going to learn through discipline. Finally, the last lines of the curses of the covenant are going to have to be invoked. These people are going to have to be kicked out of the land that I gave to them. And then along comes the most remarkable, I think he may be the most remarkable man in the Old Testament in terms of his character, in terms of his aspiration, in terms of his zeal for the Lord. Josiah. Now, I think at one point I characterized Josiah's reforms as being too little too late. That really is an understates the situation. You look at chapter 23. The entire chapter 23 Almost the entire chapter is given over to describe in detail the reforms of Josiah. And it was thorough and it was deep. It was deeper than Hezekiah's reform and Hezekiah's reform was deep. Josiah did everything that he could do as the king and covenant leader of his people in order to bring them back into a right relationship with the Lord their God. And you see it detailed here. You, you get out here the various things that were done. Um, let, let's see. Just 
He took everything that was Baalite that had, that had been brought in, everything that was idolatrous that had been brought into the temple, he took it out, had them burn it, beat it, to, uh, beat it to dust, cast it upon the graves of the common people. He broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the ashes. That tell, I mean, the, what it tells you about in the, in the reforms of Josiah, tell, it, it details more of the sins that are committed than are even described during the reign of Manasseh. How deeply it had, uh, at, they had actually moved the worship of Baal into the, into the temple of Jehovah. Including male and female cult prostitutes who had their headquarters and their apartments in the temple. Josiah cleaned that out. Let's see, all of the things. Verse 10, he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or daughter as an offering to Molech. Valley of Hinnom was that area south of Jerusalem. Topheth, a beautiful park area in that place that had been used by Manasseh as a place of an altar to Molech to offer children as a sacrifice and parents who wanted to beseech the favor of Molech would come and they would offer their children as a sacrifice in that place and as a burnt offering in this beautiful park Josiah said from now on this place is going to be a garbage dump which it remained even to the days of Jesus and when Jesus referred to judgment he referred to Gehenna, Gehenom, the valley of Hinnom, where their worm never dies and the fire never goes out. Josiah defiled that place and turned that lovely park spot that had been defiled by the blood of innocence into a garbage dump. All the things that he did. And he, it goes in detail. He goes, to, and, it, and his, it's far reaching. He goes out, he goes into the northern kingdom that formerly was Israel, the northern area that formerly was Israel, up into the Samaritan area. And he, he, begin, he takes down the, the altar. He goes, he does all the way, and he does it with his whole heart. He's not doing this politi for political reasons. He is doing this because he is seeking the favor of the Lord. He wants to do right. He wants to follow God. He wants to reinforce God's law. And what is it that has been found in, his, in, in the temple of the Lord? That there was one copy of the law. Manasseh undoubtedly had sought to destroy all the copies of the law that there were. They found one. That's right. Got the preachers to go back to church. They found one copy of the Bible. The law of God, the Torah, the book of Moses. They came out and they read it to, to Josiah. And it broke him. broke his heart. And he realized what he was up against. And the devastation and the, the declaration of the prophet has told us says, we're goners. We're sunk. God is not going to relent from this. And Josiah's character is shown in the fact that despite the judgment of God that was pronounced, even though in spite of all the reforms that he was doing, and in spite of the fact that being told that all of his reforms are hopeless, Josiah pressed on with it anyway. That was his heart for God. 
He wasn't doing it, in other words, in order to, in order to seek some favor. He was doing it because it was right. Wow. Who will do that today? <clears throat> Who will do right just because it's the right thing to do and not because it will get you a blessing? Why wasn't it enough? Josiah's reform was as wholehearted as you can get. Why wasn't it enough? You think about it. This is pretty discouraging to people who are seeking revival. <laughs> Amen? Let me just ask, ask you just to look at your own society, even small society, even a, even a local church. Whenever there's revival and in a place where death has been, the spiritual death has been entrenched, you're going to find that there's a backlash. There are times when revival is unifying, but more likely than not, revival splits a congregation it doesn't revive the whole thing the book of revelations is a little bit like the end of second Kings. in many ways that there are judgment is, judgment is coming no matter how many Josiahs come forward I want you to listen to these words What shall we say? Is the law sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died the very commandment the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good did that which is good then bring death to me by no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Romans chapter 7. Why did Josiah's revival not work? Because it was a revival under the law. And now we begin to see how God's plan is unfolding against Satan's plan. Satan's plan, you see, is to make, is to so corrupt the people of God that they can no longer be useful as a vessel for God to bring forth a Savior into the world. And to completely interrupt this whole line of David thing, this promise of David. There's Satan's strategy. What's God's strategy? He had it in mind all along. That law 
that he gave that Satan says, I can use this. And he can. I can use this. I can teach people how to covet through a law that says thou shalt not covet. God says, wait. Because the law isn't the end of the story. The covenant of law, as it turns out, was never intended to be the vehicle of salvation. God had another purpose for the law. Josiah's reform didn't work because it was a reform under the law. And what does the law do? The law, even when you're dedicated to it with all your heart, to bring forth the righteousness that God requires, at the end you find even those who are most desirous to bring it about are impotent to bring about the righteousness that the law requires. Because the law does not give the power to produce what it requires. The law requires, the law is good and it requires good. We are not. We are sold under sin. And what takes place in the whole reform of Jeremiah, the backlash that takes place after Jeremiah. It's kind of like everybody mourns Jeremiah, but or, excuse me, I say Jeremiah, Josiah. The backlash following the death of Josiah. His sons are not like him. His sons don't have his heart. His sons are scrambling to stay afloat and alive in a chaotic world. They don't have his wisdom. They don't have his purpose. They don't have his heart for God. They don't have his faith. Now here's the interesting thing. Throughout all of this, God never stops. We're going to see in the book of Jeremiah, God never stops reaching to them. God never stops proclaiming his word to him. And yet... There's something that we're going to find about, out about this. Let's go ahead and turn to Jeremiah chapter 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, son, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon. King of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. This is just about, just close to the time that Josiah was getting ready to start the first phase of his restoration and restitution which was the cleansing of the temple and the repairs of the temple. This is, this is just about that time when Jeremiah is given his commission. Jeremiah, okay, it came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the 11th, until the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. One of the things you see here is that God's revelation is, comes down to in the middle of historical events. It is rooted in history. This is one of the things that makes the biblical revelation unlike the scriptures of any other religious faith. Because everything is rooted to historical events. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, oh Lord God, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth. For 
to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. Jeremiah got out of this easier than Isaiah did. Isaiah, if you remember, uh, had, a, had a burning coal that was so hot that an angel had to use tongs in order to take it from the altar. When an angel who is indestructible and imperishable uses tongs to take a hot coal from the altar, you really don't want this on your mouth, but that's what happened to Isaiah. That's, but Jeremiah's case, Jeremiah gets off a little easier. Says God touches his lips, but it was God himself who did it. And the Lord put his hand on and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I've put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, You've seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. I'll go back and explain that in a second. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come. And every one shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls, against all around and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the works in their, of their own hands. But you, dress yourself for works. Dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them, to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, the people of the land. They will fight against you. They shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. This is the message that came to Jeremiah. It's not one he asked for. Now, he says he's a young man. He's, he's in the priesthood. That means he's at least 30 years old. He's about the time, he's about the time that Jesus was in his life when Jesus entered his ministry. He is of the line of the priesthood that is not active in the temple because Solomon edged him out. He was, you can go back to 1 Kings and see the politics of all that, but Solomon basically said, you guys aren't going to work the temple. You'll have other duties, but you're not going to work the temple. So he lives in the little town of Anathoth. few miles north of Jerusalem in the Benjamin territory about as actually Anathoth was closer to Jerusalem than uh, Welburn is to A&M okay so we're seeing somebody who is in the vicinity of Jerusalem this is where he lived this is environment but he's not part of the and he's not in the big middle of it. Isaiah in his ministry he was in the big middle of everything that was going on in the palace and the temple and everything like that. Jeremiah he's 
He's kind of an outsider. Country preacher. That's it. And the word of the Lord to him says, Before you were in the womb, I knew you. Now, all of this is understatement, by the way. But this is God telling Jeremiah and explaining to Jeremiah why Jeremiah really doesn't have a choice about all this. <laughs> I mean, I mean you can, you, you're going you, to have to do this. You have, this, is, this is your job. Lord, find somebody else. You know, he, he doesn't get any more of a chance on this than Moses did. Lord, choose somebody else. That's kind of Jeremiah's inclination. That's his impulse. I'm not up to this. I'm not prepared for this. I'm a child, I, at least in terms of my, my understanding, my, my ability to get a grip on what's going on here. I've seen all of the stuff going on, but I see a king who wants to change this. Uh, I, but I don't know what to do about this. I don't know how to talk about this. I don't, well, don't even know what to think about it all. No, never mind all that. Before you were in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Not just to this one, to all the nations. Now the interesting thing, Jeremiah, as far as we know, doesn't preach to any other nations. He doesn't like go like Jonah to some far-flung place. He doesn't go as a missionary. All the sermons that he preaches, all the prophecies he delivers are to people in Judah. And yet God says, you're a prophet to the nations. We'll find out later on there's a reason why he says that. His prophecy. Let me just go ahead and give you an advance notice. His prophecy is just as much about us as it is about the people in Judah. His prophecy is going to reach forward to a day. Well, we'll just get there when we get there. So I said, oh, Lord God, I don't know how to speak. I love that expression. Oh, Lord God. <laughs> oh, God, come on. I don't know how to speak. I mean, that sounds just like Moses. I'm, I'm, I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. You know, as Tevye said, for a man who is slow of tongue, he sure talked a lot. I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, don't say that. Don't say I'm only a youth. You're going to go to everybody I send you. You're just going to do this. <laughs> I mean, it's just God saying, you're just going to do this. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Don't be afraid of them. The literal Hebrew idiom is do not be afraid of their face. Do not fear their face. Basically, it's a preposition though. Don't be afraid before them. Don't be afraid to be in front of them. I'm with you to deliver you. Now, that would be alarming in and of itself. To deliver me, <laughs> that means I'm going to be in jeopardy and I'm going to have to be delivered. Yeah. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. This is for a very different reason than the coal from the altar was brought to touch the mouth of Isaiah. Isaiah's problem was he was impure. And he, in the presence of a holy God, he realized his impurity. That's not Jeremiah's problem. Jeremiah's problem is not impurity. Jeremiah's problem is he has nothing to say. That's what Jeremiah's problem is. You're calling me to be a prophet? I don't have anything to talk about. God says, we'll fix that. And in a visual image that made it clear to Jeremiah what he was doing, 
a visual image. It was as a vision of the finger of God coming down and touching his lips. He says, I'm putting my words in your mouth. You don't have to worry about what to say. I'm going to tell you what to say. As a matter of fact, I don't want you to be saying anything that you think of. That's not what a prophet does. The words that you're going to say are my words. And you're going to take them and you're going to deliver them. And here is your message. And look at it. To pluck up and to break down. To destroy and to overthrow. Look. To build and to plant. Look at the balance there. What are those first four things? Positive or negative? You're going to have to clear out all this junk. I'm sending you as a prophet to clear out, first of all, to clear out all this junk. Because you're going to have to clear out all the trash before you can do the things that are constructive, before you can build and plant. You are going to get to build and plant. But most of what you're going to have to do is to tear down, to destroy, to overthrow, to pluck up. Jeremiah, you're not going to have an easy time. What do you see, Jeremiah? An almond tree. Good. I'm watching over my word to perform it. What's that little thing about? First of all, the almond tree. You go back. What kind of a rod did Aaron have? Brother of Moses. What kind of a rod did he have? An almond branch. Going all the way back to Aaron, the almond branch has been uh, the emblem of watchfulness. Why? Because the word for almond tree and the word for watch are so similar in Hebrew that we can't tell the difference in hearing the pronunciation. It's the difference between the vowel of ah and the vowel of ah. It's a pun. It's a play on words. What do you see? An almond tree. A watching tree. That's right. And I'm watching. What is God watching? I've given my word for some things. And I'm going to watch over my word until everything's fulfilled. What do you see over here? I see a boiling pot. What pot's boiling? Pot's boiling. What's eventually going to happen? You leave a pot on the fire and it boils. What eventually happens? It will boil over and then eventually it will boil out. That's happened to me a couple of times. Not a happy time. And it's facing away from the north. If you look at a map, you look at your Bible maps, and you'll see the, the fertile crescent, <coughs> that Mesopotamian sort of, that was the route, that would be the, the invasion route. The Babylon, the Assyrians first, and then the Babylonians later would all come from the north. Their attack would always be from the north, not from the east, because from the east it would be straight over an impenetrable desert, an impassable desert for an army. No, they would always come through that place where there, was, where there was water and food that they could find to sustain the armies as they came through. So the attack would always come from the north. 
is, Judah is faced away from the north. The pot is faced away from the north. The judgment's coming from the north, and they're trying to avoid it. They're trying to ignore it. They don't see it coming. It's obvious to everyone, but they're ignoring what's happening to them. They're ignoring what's coming. I will declare my judgment against them for all their evil. And he names one demonstration. The one that he names is the source of everything evil that they have done. What is that? They've made offerings to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. Boil it down. And that's all of these other things, the things that they've committed that have been an abomination to God, it all comes back to this. And I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't be dismayed against them. I know you think you're weak. I know you think you don't have the stuff for this. Don't worry about it. I will make you what you need to be. I will make you strong. I will make I will make you a city, a fortified city. I will make you an iron pillar. I will make you bronze walls against the kings of Judah and its officials and priests and the people of this land. Look at this, the kings of Judah, not just one king. You're not going to be standing up against one king. You're going to be standing, once you get one, rid of one, okay, jo Josiah, you're not going to be standing up against him. You're going to be helping him. But his son's going to come up. You're going to have to stand against him. You're going to get rid of him. And the next one's going to come up. He's going to be just as tough. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to go through him. You're going to have to go through the next one and the next one. You're going to stand up against the kings of Judah. You're going to, and you're going to win. They'll fight against you. They'll not prevail against you. I'm with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. And there is our introduction. Jeremiah. I may have told you and given you some testimony about a time in my life when I entered into a spiritual depression that was that lasted for two years you know what book of the Bible I was reading when finally I stopped reading it and couldn't pick it up for another two years Jeremiah I'm not telling you that to scare you I'm telling you that so that you will understand. And there's, there's much more going on to that. But I want you to understand there is power in the Word of God. The law of God has a power, but it's not a power to give life. It's a power to convict, a power to condemn. But there is life in God's word. And we're going to connect with it in Jeremiah, even though we're going to have to get, we're going to have to examine ourselves pretty closely, folks. <coughs> we just will. So let's get ready. It's going to be, it might be a bumpy ride sometime. The end of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah are not at all the end of the biblical story, only of a significant part of the old covenant. God always has a people, even if it's but a remnant of what was before. But we turn now to the book of the prophet Jeremiah. We're going to find that he will give us profound insight into what went wrong under the kings, and a foretelling 
of what God will do later to make it right again. Until then, you've been listening to Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for tuning in.